0: Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about, and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue.
1: Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Spencer Jacob, editor of the Wall Street Journal's popular Heard on the Street column, and author of the new book, The Revolution That Wasn't, GameStop, Reddit, and the fleecing of small investors. Spencer, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, and congratulations on the book. Thank you very much. Thanks. Nice to meet you. Let's start with some basic concepts and facts before we dive into the book and its key insights. What is a meme stock, and how did GameStop, a pretty ordinary video game retailer, become one? So a meme stock, I think loosely defined, a meme is, is a,
2: a symbol used to communicate uh, online, which is uh, the younger you get, the more popular it is. But a meme stock is a stock whose sort of uh, the the whole interest in it originates online uh, in social media, most likely on a subreddit, on Reddit, like Wall Street bets or uh, Super Stonk. so th- that that's where the the fascination with it, and that's where it's uh, at least temporarily, that's what its value arises from.
1: And again, just setting the context, why were ma- major investors shorting GameStop in the first place? What was behind the short positions of companies like Melvin Capital? Okay, so short
2: selling, I mean, just to, I know not everyone listening is intimately with short selling. And short selling is a, a normal activity that has always existed as long as there have been financial markets, you know there are two things that you or I will do when, uh, or that any let's say a normal investor will do uh, when looking at an investment like a stock. You can buy it or you cannot buy it. But short sellers offer a third choice, which is they can bet against it because at any given time, That's not a terrible bet. Some stocks are going to go down. Actually, most stocks do quite poorly. Most of the stock market's performance is concentrated among a few stocks. Stocks get too expensive. Maybe they're uh, fraudulent, or some bad news is expected, or some bad news is expected about the overall market. So The way that they do that, typically, is without owning them, they they sell them. They sell a stock uh, by locating a a borrowed share somewhere. They say, hey, I'm going to borrow your share. You don't need to actually do anything. You just need to pledge this share to me and uh, say that I borrowed it, and I'm going to sell it. And uh, I'll say it's I'll sell it at ten dollars. And when it gets down to eight dollars, I'm going to buy it somewhere in the market, and then give it back to you. And I just made two dollars. Everyone else lost two dollars, and I I made two dollars. It's a pretty tough bet to make. And if you think about, un- unless you use borrowed money or something like that, you as an investor, the worst. Thing that can happen to you is you lose all of your money in a stock or a fund that you purchased. You lose 100%. They're not going to come take your house or your car. You just lost your money. and The most you can make is infinity. Stock won't go to, to infinity, but it can go very, very high. Some stocks have appreciated tens of thousands of percent over the years. For a short seller, that formula is in reverse. The most that they can do if they bought Enron the day before it went bankrupt, the most they can make is 100% very quickly. The worst they can do is lose infinity. and their losses are unlimited, so they have to pick their spots very carefully. Now, why do they do that? You ask me. So there are some people who are dedicated short sellers. They're looking for stuff that that's like a that's a dud, but that's a minority. Most short sellers, and Melvin Capital, uh, you mentioned, is the one that has played a starring role in my in my book. But there are others. They do it as a course of business. So Melvin Capital, they invested in consumer and retail stocks and things like that. So. Uh, I don't know that this specifically was their position, but maybe they said Best Buy, which is a big chain uh, here, and I think in Canada too. Uh, Best Buy, I like their business. I think it's going places. But instead of just buying Best Buy, I'm going to also sell short GameStop, which I think is a bad business. It's been losing money. Their business is very poor. Now, let's say it's a good year for uh, all retailers. Then maybe both of them will go up, but Best Buy will go up more. Or if it's a really bad year, for the whole stock market or for retailers then both will do poorly but GameStop will do worse because in his judgment it's a worse stock so it it creates some sort of a buffer to his portfolio and in addition to that it creates a form of borrowing because if you sold a stock then you have the cash that someone paid you to sell the stock without having owned it and you can use that borrowed money and buy more of the stock you like so it's a way of making big concentrated bets now Melvin Capital Specifically, was very successful at this until this episode, in which it had a really, really awful time. uh, Putting it mildly, so they earned above market returns by doing this, Um, and so that's that. That was the the setup uh,
1: going into this episode. That's great, Spencer. Thank you so much. If I can just ask one more contextual question, and then we'll move on to the book and its fascinating insights and, and analysis. What is a stock market corner? And why is it illegal? OK, so in the um, bad old days or good old days, whatever you want
2: to, you know, I, I love financial history. And I mean, the history of stock markets goes back to the, the Dutch in the 1600s. But as recently as the 1920s and 1930s here in the United States, you had all kinds of wild and woolly things happening in the stock market. And it was mainly the province of rich guys competing with other rich guys. And they would try to outwit each other. It was a total battle of wits, often doing things that are completely illegal today, like watering stock, where they would uh, take control of a company and then issue a whole bunch of stock without giving notice and then ruin somebody else. Or they would you know, get voting control through some maneuver. And a corner is one of those things that you used to see happen that you never see happen anymore, which is... It, there there is such a thing as a short squeeze which does happen quite frequently which is uh these short sellers the stock starts going up for whatever reason usually not a any kind of a conscious decision by somebody but it starts going up they had good numbers somebody wants to buy it attitude changes there's some piece of news and it starts to go up these short sellers are suddenly losing money and they have to be very very careful and if a lot of people have bet against a certain stock and gamestop um was a stock that a lot of people bet against then It's like a whole bunch of people being in a theater and someone yells fire, and there's just one door. Right? They need to, they need to head for that that door, and some of them are going to get trampled on the way out, and so they'll they'll get hurt as they try to leave. Now, a corner is intentionally trying to do that, but it's even more than that. A corner is when you try to buy up all the stock. Uh, There was a very famous. You could still do it in the commodity markets, uh, although not very easily. There was a famous corner in 1980 in in the silver market where. Two of the richest men in America tried to literally buy up all the world's silver uh, over many years. and then all of a sudden show up and say, haha, we have all the silver and you guys are selling silver short, and you need to pay us any price. You could have to pay us uh, infinite dollars you know, for an ounce of silver and you have to pay us, otherwise you're bankrupt. And uh, it didn't they went bad. They wound up going bankrupt. But uh, that's something that you cannot do anymore in the United, in the United States or really any developed market because it's it's like ganging up on people and you'd be doing it in secret and it would involve collusion. What makes this story so interesting is that it was an attempt at a corner that uh, it's a little bit of a fuzzy gray area, but as far as I can tell, was basically legal and you couldn't crack down on it anyway, which is a bunch of people individually doing it out in the open, just discussing it on on this Reddit forum. And <laughs> that's crazy. I mean, you, there's, how how would you have ever gotten away with that? Well, the only way you could get away with that is if you're discussing it on a forum that nobody on Wall Street takes very seriously. They think it's like a big joke. And maybe some of them even saw it and told their boss and their boss is like, what are you wasting my time? Like these, these guys who post memes and stuff like that. But there were some people on these these message boards who were pretty financially savvy. We don't know who they are, but probably they worked in finance. They said, no, 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 this is how you have to do it. This stock is sold so short, it's more shorted than almost any stock has ever been in history because it's a loser, it's GameStop, it's been losing money for years. And they and they pointed out other stocks too later that were in a similar position. And they said, these hedge funds are gonna, you know, you you can blow them up. And don't you want to blow up hedge funds? Yes, because we hate Wall Street, and hedge fund managers are like the cartoon villains of Wall Street. So let's let's bankrupt these guys. They were talking about it openly. And Until it was too late, nobody did anything to to stop them.
1: That's just a a masterclass, Spencer, helping to situate um, the book in these um, complex financial structures and arrangements. Um, So I'm very grateful. Let me just take you up on the last point, though, about the particular case of of GameStop. A common narrative at the time was that this was about retail investors sticking it to hedge fund managers in particular, and, and Wall Street more generally, as you say. It took on a David versus Goliath quality. Why did that narrative first take shape? And kind of fundamentally, what was it speaking to? The generation primarily that that
2: took part in this, and, and I go into this a, a, a lot in the book, and I think it's, I mean, the story is, is fascinating, but I think the economic and the social backdrop and, and the industry backdrop, the social media industry and the brokerage industry, it's uh, you know, it's not too complicated the way I, I describe it. I hope, uh, but I, I think that that is just as interesting because the conditions were were set for this. And one of the conditions is that the generation primarily that contributes to this, their formative experiences as as children, teenagers, maybe as young adults, was the financial crisis, and I mean, it's it's not totally untrue, but it's not it's not that simple either. But they look at Wall Street and they say <clears throat> Wall Street. That's why my parents lost their house, or that's why my, my dad lost his job, or that's why my parents couldn't pay for me to go to college because they lost all this money in the stock market, or whatever, or, or they know people who are in that situation. and Wall Street didn't pay the price. I want to extract my pound of flesh. I don't, I don't have anything against rich people, per se, but rich people on Wall Street, I don't like them. Like I like Elon Musk and cool rich guys, but I don't like rich guys who put on a suit and make money from other money. And so there, there was already an underlying resentment there. That that is is part of it. Part of it then is that in the United States, sports gambling, which, you know, which was the one the, the few areas of gambling that is more popular with young people and older people, was legalized in many states in 2018 and 2019. And so you had a, a lot of young men. And I, I have three sons. Two of them are are young adults, and one is a teenager. And so I'm totally just constantly shocked by by their friends behavior and stuff like that it is it is extremely widespread extremely widespread and first it was daily fantasy sports but then it morphed into using the very same apps sports betting through their smartphones it was a, a thing that probably most young men in their early 20s did so this kind of gambling mentality was there then you had the commissions Stop brokerage commissions that were brought down to zero by Robinhood specifically. They weren't the first to do it, but they're the first to really make a lot of success. Half of the new brokerage accounts in the five years leading up to the story in America were opened in this one really small broker, and it was small money accounts, accounts that are way smaller than other people. How can they do that? How can they charge zero, and how can they have customers with so little money? Well, because they were very good at getting people to be really active in the stock market. And what ha- wound up happening, too, is that every other broker in late 2019, every other discount broker threw in the towel and said, screw it, we're, we're charging $0 commissions, too. And it, we make our money mostly other ways anyway. We'll give up that income because we can't compete with these guys. And much to their surprise, their turnover exploded because their customers loved it, too, because turns out stock trading is fun. You know, if you, if you take, and you're from Canada, so this is a good example for you, Snow shovel, you know. I don't know how many snow shovels you have in your house. We have one. Maybe if snow shovels were free, I'd buy a second one because I have sons and I'd like them to help me. I wouldn't get 10 snow shovels, even if they cost a penny, because who needs that many snow shovels? So it's something that's useful and boring. But stock trading, it turns out, is not something just useful and boring. It's something that's a lot of fun, especially for these young people, especially during wild times in the stock market. And so they should have known, but they didn't understand their own business that well. And they saw an explosion in their business and they were delighted. Every broker saw an explosion in business, especially when the pandemic began, because you had young people who all of a sudden had no sports to bet on, nothing else to do, no social outlets for a while, lots of enforced savings here in the United States, stimulus checks on the government on top of that. And that was more money than they really had ever had in some cases. And and they were bored out of their, their skulls. And they said, hey, why don't you start stock trading? And the way that, that Robin is specifically and, and its, its imitators got new customers was that it wasn't advertising. They did, did advertise. It was that they got their customers to recruit other customers. They said, if you open an account, you get a mystery free share of stock. Even if you just put 20 bucks into the account, it could be a $100 stock. And then you made five times your money without doing anything. Or well, it could be a $5 stock, which it usually was. But you got a free share of stock. It's, it's random. And then if you get a friend to sign up, Every friend you get to sign up, you get a referral code for another free share of stock, another lottery ticket, and they get one too. So it's spread like wildfire through basically through through friendships. And when you open an account, when you're 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 like, I hate to stereotype, but I will, you're drunk at a frat party and your friend says, Hey, you should trade this stock and you should do this, and you should have, this. I don't have an account, dude. Yeah, just set up a Robinhood account. And five minutes later, even though with the other brokerage accounts, you had to wire them, money from your bank, and it was complicated. It was easy with Robinhood because they gave you money right away. They said, yeah, we know the money's coming. Listen, you can use our money for a few days. We know you're you're good for the money, and you can start trading right now. So five minutes later, you're buying a stock. You, know, there's, the, you didn't even have time to cool down and stop thinking about it. And all of that led to an explosion in activity. In, in terms of the overall turnover in the stock market, you had an explosion, but then the share that was made up of of small individual traders quadrupled roughly in the period of a a year. and It happened at a time where you had the most wild market ever. Remember that the stock market plunged. You had the most rapid ever fall from an all-time record to a bear market ever, ever, ever. Then you had, by an order of magnitude, the fastest ever recovery. and In that year, following the bottom of the market, 96% 96% of stocks rose. So you know what? It wasn't like sports betting where it's kind of like a 45, 55 wager. It was a 96, 4 wager. You know, Almost everything went up. The key wasn't making money. The key was finding the things that made the most money. So everybody felt like a genius. And success is a very bad teacher in finance, uh, in anything. It's a very bad teacher in, in finance. The first thing that you experience is uproarious success. And your 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 parents or your parents friends or your parents stockbroker are saying I wouldn't do that, you know. And he's wrong, and you're right. And you you got advice from some random person on social media who turned out to be right. And your dad's broker at Morgan Stanley was wrong. Well, guess what? You're going to keep on trusting those people. So it was a perfect formula for an influencer-driven crazy thing to happen in the stock market.
1: And then we got to the GameStop squeeze. So let's pick up the story there. You know, you've you've explained how meme stocks in general can take shape. How did GameStop become a, a meme stock? So GameStop had a few
2: characteristics. One is that it was a, a very bad business. It had been losing money for years. It just reported our earnings the day that we're speaking. Uh, I know this is recorded, but it reported earnings last night and reported its fourth consecutive year of losses. So it still is a money losing business. Uh, that's not a generally a business you want to invest in. And it's a business that's being kind of digitized or was being was being digitized out of existence because people bought, and I know this very well because I made fewer and fewer trips there with my sons as they kind of weren't buying discs, they were buying stuff online. They didn't need to go to a, a brick and mortar store anymore. So people like Melvin Capital, Gay Plotkin felt very safe betting against it, too safe. And they felt very unsafe betting against other stuff. All kinds of other, all kinds of dumb harebrained stuff was going up even if there was bad news. so If you're in the business of selling stock short, or at least that's part of your business, you had an awful year in 2020, because all kinds of insane stuff went up a lot. But here was something no one was going to get interested in, right? There was GameStop. There was AMC, the movie theater chain that was months away from bankruptcy because there was a pandemic and people are streaming movies now. And there was BlackBerry, Pride of Canada, I know, but you know, I have not had a BlackBerry in a long time, and you probably haven't either. There was Nokia. you would probably haven't had a Nokia phone in a long time either. And there's Bad Bath and Beyond, which is a retail chain here that was being Amazoned out of existence. So companies like that, they all had a, a, a lot of people feeling very safe betting against them. And what was the worst thing that was going to happen? Maybe somebody would show up and buy GameStop for fifty percent more than it was trading for in the stock market, and then you'd have a really bad day as a short seller. You wouldn't be bankrupted. you'd just lose money, right? No one thought that it you know it would go up. Two thousand percent, right? I mean that that was just not in your financial model. So that that's why those stocks. But also, GameStop specifically was a for these mainly young men was a a part of their childhood, and so they felt more emotional about it than they might have felt about a different stock. They were totally familiar with this business because they had been just like my sons. They had been frequent visitors to it, and you know, there's a very heavy overlap between gamers and people who are doing this. One hundred percent, almost, right? And they conflated uh, hedge fund managers who they already had an inclination not to like betting against it with them wanting to put it out of business, which is not the same thing. Betting against a company is not trying to put it out of business. It's betting that its stock price is going to go down. It's counting on it going out of business, maybe, but it's not causing it to go out of business, which is a subtle but important distinction. Anyway, so that's that's why GameStop came into this. and GameStop was the most heavily shorted stock out there, and you had some colorful characters show up and make the opposite bet. Ryan Cohen, also Canadian, a lot of Canadians, he, Canadian stuff to talk about here. Ryan Cohen, he's, he's now uh, he lives in the US, but he's grew up in Canada, born in Canada, an entrepreneur who started chewy.com, who is a millennial who showed up with a big stake that really lit the fuse in the late summer of 2020 for this episode that reached its
0: uh, its crescendo in January, late January 2021. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter per diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca thehub.ca now back to our program
1: so um at that point it seems to me uh, it's it's worth asking about the book's title because it alludes to that crescendo why in your view did the revolution fail why was in the end the narrative about taking on the hedge fund managers and wall street wrong
2: I have to say that there there are people who are going to say it didn't fail for me. I bought it and I made ten times the money and I sold it. So you don't know what you're talking about when you're talking about a group of uh, a million or two people. You, you're talking about them in aggregate, not uh, individually. And so, we we'll just put put that out there. Yes, I understand that uh, of course. But they had two goals, and they didn't all have the same goal. Some had one, some had the other, and some had both, because the, this group is not a monolith. But basically, their two goals were stick it to the man by giving Wall Street a black eye and make a ton of money. And as a group, they failed on both counts. And and I'll I'll explain the Wall Street part is is very simple. Why they failed is because Wall Street is a really big place. There were a whole bunch of hedge funds that made money on this just by dumb luck being in the right place at the right time or jumping on the bandwagon or identifying this. There are a whole bunch of of people on Wall Street who are not in the risk-taking business like Robin Hood, the main broker, that had a bonanza. There were a whole bunch of companies called market makers that specifically thrive from these surges in activity in usually thinly traded stocks that made billions of dollars during this episode. So the money made on Wall Street far, far, far eclipses the money lost. And I think that you know, because if you have a kind of a cartoonish version of Wall Street, and you watch billions, and you think that it's Bobby Axelrod, and that's it, and he's Mr. Wall Street. No, there are tens of thousands of people on Wall Street. They liked this. They always like it when lots of, of fresh money shows up and thinks it's going to outsmart them. You never outwit Wall Street as a group. Individually, maybe, yeah, but, but as, as a new group coming to Wall Street that thinks it's figured something out. Never and that's why I call it the fleecing of small investors because small investors are regularly fleeced on on wall street they're fooled into thinking that they can beat it that that's wall street's marketing message is that you're an investor, you can do this, you should try this you know you can you can outsmart us you know it's it's playing to all kinds of human psychological foibles and flattery and the the exact opposite is actually true uh, not only should you not try, but you know the you really should not try. But you know, you, you are not a good investor. Uh, we humans are just not good investors. It's the human condition. It has nothing to do with your smarts. It has to do with your wiring. It, it is the way that our brains are wired through thousands of years as, as hunter gatherers that we are fearful and we should be greedy and we're greedy and we should be fearful. And it's very difficult to overcome. Even if you intellectually understand uh, that you should behave the opposite way, in the heat of the moment, it's difficult to act that way. So most people are very bad investors and wall street doesn't care they you know they want your money they want to bring you in they want you to be as active as possible and in, in the highest cost thing possible and this this was the you know this was the most lucrative way to make money from young people with not very much money is to get them to be very active they weren't going to pay you a lot of fees because they didn't have a lot of money to pay in fees but if there there was a hidden cost to their activity which was hyperactivity then that was great and they really perfected it Uh, with these brokerage apps like Robinhood.
1: Let me take you up on the point of Robinhood. Um, One of the most contentious developments in the entire episode was the suspension of trading GameStop on the platform. It led to claims that the market was rigged and it even for a while uh, achieved a a degree of bipartisan consensus, which is hard to do in the United States these days. Yes. What led to the suspension? And and in your view, were investors right to be angry? So, I mean, if you were getting very excited about this
2: fun new game and making a lot of money. And all of a sudden, your broker told you, you can't buy this stock. You can only sell the stock. Yeah, I guess you have a right to be angry. The thing is that it seemed very suspicious. And I mean, I'll, uh, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence there that would lead one naturally to be suspicious, okay? It was like kind of the like JFK assassination type stuff, where there are all these coincidences, but not a conspiracy prob- probably, right? And in this case, definitely not a conspiracy. You... Robin Hood, when you had all these hedge funds on the ropes, you had Robin Hood come out and say, You can't buy. Like, what do you mean? You, you can only sell, you can't buy. That's never been done before. And they didn't do a good job of explaining it. And they were really in a quandary because they were hours away from going out of business. And when you're a financial firm, you don't say, Hey, we're actually hours away from going out of business, and this is why. And here's a you know technical explanation. They they were initially vague until they they raised some money later that day. And so they didn't do a good job initially of communicating because they are, they were in a difficult position. But then you had Robin Hood's main counterparty was Citadel Securities. Well, Citadel Securities is controlled by the same man who controls Citadel LLC, which is one of the biggest hedge funds uh, in America. Well, we don't know if what that hedge fund does; it's secretive. Maybe they were losing a bunch of money. We what we do know is that Citadel gave a bunch of money, two billion dollars. That week to Melvin Capital, which was losing a ton of money, which lost almost seven billion dollars for its investors, it almost blew up. You know, seven billion dollars in a few days—crazy is to lose that much money on these stocks that aren't even major stocks. You know, it wasn't—they wasn't, weren't even a big part of their portfolio. But it's just the losses were just so devastating, and and there was so much, you know, borrowing uh, effective borrowing built into it. So hey, Citadel gives money to these guys to bail them out, and Citadel's doing business with them. And we know this Citadel's talking to Robin Robinhood, a normal course of business, but whatever. And they stop it, and they're kind of rescuing these hedrons. The fix is in. It's you know heads, heads you win, tails we lose. Basically, that's the way they saw it, and that's how every politician saw it, whether or not they understood it. Maybe they had some staffer whispering to their ear, no, actually, let me explain what a clearinghouse is, and this is what happened. They didn't care. They were not gonna. You were not going to win any political points by giving some nuanced explanation, of it. you were like, this is an outrage. You had people on the far left and the far right and the middle and talk show hosts and everybody going crazy about it that day. Congressional hearings were called that day. And the justification for calling the hearings was this outrageous thing that happened. The explanation, I can go into the explanation. It's its in my book. I think that the, the whole story is, is interesting, but I think that the one sort of... I had to put it in there. The one possibly boring chapter is explaining how how this happened and why this happened. I mean, I need to to explain it. You know, for the for the record, the explanation is is boring. But basically, Robin Hood did too good of a job. Robin Hood got his customers so excited about such a narrow group of things that the formulas that its broker had its, which is a clearinghouse, which is like a actually not even a private company. It's it's part of the the government, quasi part of the government, said. We assessed your risk and you need to come up with three billion dollars in three hours, which they could not do. And then the only way that they could stay in business and avert a kind of a cast, which would have been bad for its customers anyway, the same thing would have happened, but their money would have been frozen for weeks, not days, is that they said, (laughs) you know, you can't buy these 13 stocks. Sorry, you know. And then they they explained themselves, but to this day, it is the shooter on the grassy knoll. The people will not let go of the conspiracy theory. You know, conspiracies cannot be
1: killed online. I'm just going to ask uh, two final questions, one specific and then one kind of big picture looking into the future. The specific question for which I don't have a good answer, I'd love to hear your thoughts, is why do you think GameStop's share prices remained over $100 since this experience? Why hasn't it fallen back to pre-meme stock levels? Well, two,
2: two reasons for that. One, one that's very straightforward and one that's not so straightforward. One reason is that GameStop and also AMC, which was another meme stock, they went out and they said, you know what, we have all these enthusiastic investors. Basically, every investor that knows how to value a company, every investment fund, everybody else uh, basically has left. All we have left are insiders and index funds that have to own this and a bunch of retail investors. And we're going to take advantage. This company is in trouble. This company has been losing money for years. But maybe if we went out and raised money, we could go and pivot and do something else and do digital stuff or what NFTs you know, have all these, these ideas. Let's go out and raise money at this very high price while strike while the iron is hot. So when you bring a bunch of money into a company at a very high, it becomes self-fulfilling because that money is the company's money. So GameStop raised much more money than the company was worth before this whole episode. So that money is money. Whether you it's in the bank or you pay off your debt or you buy something good with it, that money is value to the company. So the, the, the it can it won't go down to what it was worth before because it's raised this money. Probably not a very good investment for the people who gave it that money, but that's a different story. They raise that money, that money's in the company. The boring, or not the boring reason, the uh, the, the more ephemeral, harder to to really quantify reason. Is that people are very excited about it? When people get excited about something, its price stays high. You remember the Beanie Baby bubble? Remember Beanie Babies cost like three dollars, four dollars, five dollars, then they were worth three, four, five thousand dollars for a, a, you know, several months, right? There was this this mania around. It was the same thing. It was the same stupid doll, but it was worth a thousand times as much as people had paid for them. What's the intrinsic value of a Beanie Baby? I don't know. Now that bubble has deflated. But even today, uh, there are people who will pay more for a Beanie Baby than it was purchased for. So there, you know, there's the that memory of it having been worth that, and that creates an anchor in people's minds. And if it was worth that once, then maybe you could maybe it could creep back just a little bit towards that thing. And so bubbles deflate very slowly for that reason because people have this anchoring effect. It's a it's a psychological foil where they look at what something was worth. Not what it is worth, but what it was worth. And they they use that as the basis of, well, it's it's less than half that now. It's got gotta be good, right? And 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 so that's those are the two reasons. Uh right now, GameStop is, I don't know, in the in the 80-something dollar range. It got as high as $483. So it's it's well below what it it was worth, but it's well above the $4 and change that it was worth before this really started to inflate the the correct price is, is probably somewhere in between also you have new management and you have this guy Ryan Cohen who's now the chairman of the company and talking about nfts and what have you and who knows you know maybe he'll figure something out and he he was a very successful retail entrepreneur so maybe maybe he will figure something out he just hasn't hasn't shown it yet but maybe maybe he's really smart and will turn the ship around you know so there are all kinds of stories you can tell and all kinds of uh, anchoring and and that's 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 a long answer to your question, but
1: that's why. Let me wrap up with a big picture question. As I said, this whole episode for better or for worse it contributed to the perception that the market is shaped by these big players behind the scene, and retail investors are sort of pawns in a game. To the extent that that perception is now it particularly shaped the views of this particular generation. What do you think the long-term consequences of this experience will be in terms of people's trust in investing and the market? Yeah, it, it
2: could be very costly. If you look at uh, at times when there have been devastating losses, then it's been very costly, and, and the cost has not been the money lost in the episode necessarily, although that is a loss. But it's the um, the fact that people then didn't invest. I mean, for example, buying stocks in the nineteen thirties. If you were a pretty young person and you bought stocks in the nineteen thirties and Held them and didn't do anything too too wild, didn't buy uh, some some real clunker. You got very very good returns. That was one of the best times ever to be invested in in the U.S. or the U.K. or the Canadian stock market, right? But people thought you were crazy if you if you invested in stocks then because the memory of the losses in 1929 to 1932 were so fresh, it was so devastating. Why on earth do you do that? And this is a bit different. This is this is not. I mean, we're in the middle of a kind of a bit of a downdraft in the market, but this is the market's rigged, the market's crooked. I don't trust it. And and that can be very costly too, because it's not just the money that you lost. Maybe you're 25 years old and you lost your savings of a couple of thousand dollars or a big chunk of it. It is the fact that over all those subsequent years, you will not compound your your wealth and trust the stock market and engage with it in a kind of a more sober way than you did at first. You view it as a fundamentally Corrupt, dangerous place. So I I think that that some group of the people who got involved in this, uh, they open financial accounts, and it'll wind up being a good thing in the long run because they'll be like, you know what, I kind of learned my lesson, and this is really not the way to do it. I'm going to buy a book, you know, about uh, how to how to do this, and I'm going to engage with the stock market in a kind of a sober, long term way. That that's going to be a minority. Then there's going to be a small, I hope very small minority that's conspiratorially minded that. Continues to engage. There are people who keep putting their life savings into these meme stocks because they they believe that there's going to be another short squeeze. That's like like the coming of the messiah. You know, am look at AMC five hundred K. They think that AMC is going to be five hundred thousand dollars because there's going to be a, a massive short squeeze. And you point that to them. You know, AMC is going to be worth three times what the entire U.S. economy is worth. Like, you really believe that? Yes, because of this. Like, okay. You know. So obviously, that's. That's a crazy expensive thing to believe in. And then in the middle, yeah, like the, of what you describe is people who are just bitter. I hope that that people take the correct lesson from this, which is that if the, the harder you try to beat Wall Street, the worse your, your results tend to be. The less you try to beat Wall Street, you kind of engage with it in a very kind of passive, cheap and lazy way, basically, the greater your chances of beating Wall Street. That's the real paradox in investing is that l- the less effort you put in and the less you Kind of pay up for good advice, the better you tend to do. As a matter of fact, if you were a, just a kind of a passive regular rebalancing index fund investor, over a couple of decades, you will beat 85% of other individual investors and you'll beat 80% of professionals. You'll, you'll, be, you'll beat Wall Street. That's what you wanted to do. You'll beat Wall Street. And as a bonus, if you don't like Wall Street, you're also starving Wall Street of money because they make so little money off of you. You buy a bunch of exchange traded funds here in the u s. you can buy the whole stock market for zero point zero three percent a year. No. and just put it in a drawer and forget about it. You don't have to do anything, right? They're not making a lot of money. Zero point zero three percent does not make make these companies rich. It makes them like a little bit of money. It covers their expenses and then a little bit more than that. It's not a bonanza that's you don't have guys driving Bentley's because they're getting zero point zero three percent of your savings, okay? So, Do that, you know. That's that's that. You have accomplished both of the goals of these
1: revolutionaries by doing
2: that. I mean, it doesn't obviously. It takes a while to to play out that way, but the evidence is very strong that it does.
1: Well, those in search of the evidence should read Spencer Jacobs' book, *The Revolution That Wasn't: GameStop, Reddit, and the Fleecing of Small Investors*. Spencer Jacobs, thank you so much for joining us today at Hub Dialogues. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's executive director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. Thanks for listening.